Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's episode is brought to you by Excel Moto, who currently have for the entirety of March course kit sale, whereby for £90 you can get your pick of leather biking jackets and biking jeans combined just 90 pounds, it's superb value. I've been wearing two of their pairs of jeans now for over two years. They are built to last, fantastic looking things. And perfect timing right at the start of biking season as well. I, I think it's probably just about the best deal you can possibly get for a complete set like that. It really is fantastic. So I'll include all of the details in the written description below. I've also got from XL Moto the course kit backpack or the course the bag backpack that I highly recommend and that's also on sale at £60. So the details in the written description. So thank you to Excel Moto. Let's get down to it, to a couple of bits of world, world news and relevant news. One from Bali, one from Germany. I will start with the German news. And this is in relation to, in, in previous months, well, if we look back a year ago, I've always been quite pro-electrification, but my stance has slightly changed. I'm quite, I don't know the right word for it, but I am, I'm unsure now, more and more unsure, growing uncertainty as to whether electrification is actually the future. I don't think it's pushing on fast enough. I don't think now it really is the future for mass personal transportation. I think there must be a better way. This has come out from Germany. This is from Reuters. Have a listen to this, I'm quoting. The title is Germany forms an alliance against the phase out of internal combustion engines by 2035. Now the problem I've got, not with this article, but the problem I've got in general, and it's not party political and it's not specifically about the UK, is that just like when 15 years ago the British government was saying everyone had to buy diesel vehicles because this is going to be the saviour, then that turned out that they were completely wrong. In fact, completely the opposite was true. I think now they've got the blinkers on and governments are thinking, right, electrification is the future. And I don't know if they're being open-minded enough to other ways of saving the planet and making sure that we're still allowed to drive around in our vehicles while reducing the emissions. So this is from Germany. Germany has formed an alliance with Italy and some Eastern European countries in opposing the planned phase-out of internal combustion engines by 2035, and they want to make their own proposal. The Transport Minute Minister from Czech Republic, Germany, Italy, Poland, Romania, Hungary and Slovakia met on Monday to discuss the changes to the European Union plans. Now, I could go on and on, but in essence, what they're saying is that, yes, you can look at phasing out internal combustion engines, you can look at electrification, but is it too, too slim down uh, a, a viewpoint to just look at, oh, internal combustion engines must all be bad, let's get rid of them, or should we actually be looking for potential ways where you can still make use of these, what are very good internal combustion engines, but maybe looking at some 
carbon neutral fuels, other ways to maybe even keep these vehicles on the road, but looking at different fuels to fuel internal combustion engines. My personal view is that this is definitely the way to go. Looking at different fuels, is there a way that we can keep internal combustion engines on the road, but with different fuels. I think this is a much more level-headed way to go and at least be open-minded to it, not just have the blinkers on for electrification. Yes, electric vehicles can work in some circumstances, but if you look at planes and other, other means of transport, planes are never going to be able to run on electric engines. There must be other ways. And if, if they're looking at running planes with different fuels, well, then you can look at running vehicles, cars, motorbikes with different fuels, but still with internal combustion engines. My strong feeling is that over the next five to 10 years or so, the focus will shift from electrification to looking at different fuels within internal combustion engines. Right. I've had so many people contact me for this. It's been fascinating. Thank you all for getting in touch. I could have picked any one of you, but this is from Rob in the US. He shared this with me. Bali to ban tourists from renting motorbikes. There's been a spate of, of bad riding from, from us foreigners in Bali. There have been some incidents of drink riding and incidents of not following the, the local driving and riding laws here in Bali. So in essence, the Balinese government is sick of it and they want to clamp down on foreigners being able to rent scooters and motorcycles. And it sounds like they could bring these laws in at the end of 2023 or sometime within 2023, making it illegal for all foreigners to be able to rent any form of motorized two-wheel transport. But without question, I have zero doubt in my mind, if this comes into play and they do ban this, that is the tourist sector dropping off the face of the earth in Bali. There is no public transport in Bali. The roads are chronically asthmatic with way, way too small roads and way, way too many vehicles on the roads. If you then try and get rid of two-wheel transport for foreigners and force foreigners into cars and vans, it just cannot cope. There aren't even car parking spaces in Bali. Nothing here is set up for, for cars. It is completely unworkable, totally unworkable. The thought, if I come to Bali, the thought of me having to go and get a taxi to a coffee shop and then call another taxi to get from the coffee shop to a beach enjoy myself on the beach and then call another taxi to get back home again. It's completely unthinkable. It would be my idea of hell. Monica and I recently got a taxi to a port, which is about 24 kilometers away because we were going to do a bit of island hopping. It should have been a 25 minute ride on a scooter and it took about one hour, 20 minutes. And the drive was so bad in this taxi that Monica and I both decided to get out before because we had to look at Google Maps and it was actually quicker to walk than do the rest of the journey in the taxi. Some places, and a lot of these places are Southeast Asia, cars just don't work. They don't work. The only mode of transport that's viable 
is two-wheel transportation. You must be able to squeeze in six little scooters in the same space as you can squeeze one car. It doesn't make any sense trying to push people into cars. And the Balinese government saying, oh, it's great, it's fine. Go out and use a taxi or rent a car from a registered, a registered car rental company. That, that is, I'm sorry, that is not workable at all. The reality is there are just as many Balinese locals breaking the, the riding and driving laws as there are foreigners. I know the foreigners will get bad stick for it, and rightly so. You shouldn't be breaking laws in a foreign country, but my lord, the locals probably break just as many laws as the foreigners. I can't wait to see what happens with this, but for me personally, personal note, I will not be coming to Bali if I'm not allowed to get my own form of transport. I just cannot see how it would work. So I'll be following this with a lot of interest. Rob and everyone else for sharing that. Thank you so much. And biking, sorry, taking away biking, taking it away, it's the most fantastic mode of transport for getting around. It opens up the entire of Southeast Asia. Having areas in Southeast Asia where you can't use a little 125cc bike, it takes away so much magic, I, I cannot even explain it. Right, I move on to Josh from Alehouse Jets. Josh, you actually sent me this over about a week ago and I, I totally forgot to save it because this is a bike from Praga that's come out. It's just one of the most beautiful looking things I've ever seen. Originating in 1928, this bike, and this is, if you're a fan of ultra rare, ultra limited edition custom bikes, take a look at this. Praga, P-R-A-G-A, Z-S 800. I believe, if I'm right, let me see if I can find the price. It is... £75,000 for this bike. I've never seen it before in my life until Josh from Alehouse Jets shared it. But if you have a sweet taste in motor motorbikes with, with a healthy bank balance, go and have a look at these. You've got to imagine a, a Royal Enfield Classic 350 mixed with a CCM motorcycle mixed with a Harley Davidson Springer. And that pretty much sums up this bike. It's 142 kilos with a perfect 50-50 weight distribution. And it's got the engine. Have a listen to this, though. It's got the engine from the Kawasaki W800. Now, an argument may be that's a lot of money for getting a very simple Kawasaki W800 engine. But it is a very special looking thing. Yeah, if I had the money, I'd, I'd buy one of those and I'd put it, I'd put it in my living room as a work of art. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you for that, Josh. I move on to Tim. Oh, Tim, I bumped this up. I've only recently got this from Tim, but I found this a, a very interesting point that he's got here. Freddie, are insurance category N motorbikes anything to be scared of? For anyone not European, Category N motorcycles, that is the, the least ex extreme form of written-off bikes. In, in Europe, we have 
in essence four categories. You've got category N, which means a bike has been legally written off, it's not an economical repair, but the N stands for non-structural. So the core of the bike, the frame, the, the real heart of the bike is still intact, but the wing mirrors, the body panels, they could all have been damaged. Maybe the wheels as well. They could have been damaged where it's just not economical to fix all of those parts. But the reality is, if you're someone even slightly mechanically inclined, you can just go onto eBay, pick up some new body panels, maybe pick up a new tank, some wheels, clip those onto the bike, and there's nothing deep down in the core wrong with it. The level above N, category N write-off, is category S write-off, and S stands for structural. That means there's something structurally damaged on the bike, and that is more serious. But what we're talking about here, category N, the least serious. So are category N motorbikes anything to be scared of? I recently won an eBay auction for a lightly damaged Royal Enfield Classic 350. I was on the computer late tonight, and I saw this bike coming to an end, and I thought, I'd put in a last-minute cheeky bid, 20, <laughs> 20 pounds over the highest, thinking I'll be, thinking I'll be immediately outbid. Oh, I've been there. I know exactly what you mean. You know what, Tim, you're almost describing Monica and her buying habits. The amount of times Monica has said to me, oh, I, I think I've just won something by clicking on it. I'm like, no. No, Monica, you, you still have to click buy. You, you wanted the thing, and now you're making up a story that you've accidentally bought it. So, I'm, Tim, I'm getting some flashbacks here to Monica. I'm going to carry on with this. I was on the computer, uh, put in a cheeky bid, £20 over, thinking I'll be outbid. To my horror, I wasn't. And as the clock ticked down, I realised I was about to win, and panic ensued. I am by no means a grease monkey, and I've got very little mechanical ability. Now, I was about to buy a bike which clearly needed work doing. However, once the initial what have I done questions died down, I realised what a bargain I've got. Paying just £2,000, it represents great value. All it needs is a rear lamp, a new rear brake lever and minor cosmetic attention to the exhaust. All in the parts, all in the parts are ordered from an Indian contact at less than 60 quid. The work required, in fact, I've just seen that's 60 with a space and a one. So it's either 60 pounds or 601 pounds. So read into that what you will, but still that means you're coming in at much below market rate. So all in the cost was 60 or 601. The work required is, even with my skill set, very low. I now have a bike that, for all intents and purposes, is the same as one costing nearly twice the price. Motorbikes aren't like cars. Oh, okay, I think that's, that must be 60 pounds. It must be. Motorbikes aren't like cars. There is nothing hidden. If the frame is structurally sound, um, is there any harm in actually having a Category N bike? So just to confirm, £2,000 for the bike, and that will be £60 for the part. That's just £2,060 in total. I continue. I notice on Autotrader at the moment there's a Triumph T100, still with the first original owner, very low miles, minor accidents repaired, for little over £5,000. 
God, you've got me thinking here. A complete bargain with all the service and background record you could ever want. Indeed, this would, in my opinion, be much more preferable than a non-accident damaged bike with multiple owners and higher mileage. The classic 350 that I bought is glorious and will be my go-to commuter. It will bring me joy every single day, and at this price, I think I've got the ultimate freedom machine. Regards, Tim. Tim, that T120 at £5,000 is completely mind-blowing, and I totally share your thoughts with this. Category N bikes, category N cars, vehicles, there's nothing wrong with these at all, and you're completely right. You see the bike or the vehicle, you, you find out what's wrong with it, and bikes are so much easier than cars. You unscrew, especially with Royal Enfields, they're so easy. The rear lamp, fine, it's smashed. Unscrew it, go and find a, a, another used one on eBay or somewhere else, 60 quid, 60 quid you spent, screw it on. There is nothing wrong with the bike then. See, this is the thing, if a bike is written off, it's the insurance company that's writing it off because an insurance company will only replace like-for-like like parts. So let's say if there's a panel damaged, they will have to buy that panel to repair the bike from Royal Enfield, from Ducati, from Triumph. They're not going to think, okay, what can we source secondhand on eBay to make this cheap? No, it's not the way they work. They don't have time for that. So it means that bikes are often written off when they have no real right to be written off because there's nothing wrong with them at all. And that makes category N bikes an incredible bargain. The only negative in my eyes about category N bikes is that when you sell it on, you will be selling it on for less money. But that's negated by the fact that you're buying it for less money in the first place. Tim, I'm with you. Category Ns are nothing to be scared of or scared of at all. That is an unbelievable bargain for a classic 350 at 2,000 pounds. Two grand. Fantastic. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. And someone go and check Auto Trader. Triumph T120, five grand, one owner, category N. Someone grab that bike ready for the biking season. I move on from James. Freddie, James here, a 45-year-old trucker from Keeley in West Yorkshire. After a lifetime of wanting to get my bike license, I bit the bullet and I did my CBT yesterday and it went well. I've got my theory booked for April and I'm looking to go direct access. Although it's become apparent that I need a 125cc for my practice, my dream bike, not a big dream bike, is a Honda CB125R as I think they look good and they would hold their money well. But for the same or less money, I could get a brand new CB125F with two years warranty. I know the CB125R would give me more smiles and pleasure. Your opinions, Freddie? I think I already know your answer. Thank you, James. James, welcome to the world of biking. You, you know the answer here. For me, always, always go for the dream bike. You may be able to get the CB125F for the same money as a used 125R, but new bikes are built so well, it doesn't matter. A two-year-old two-year-old bike to get your dream bike, just buy your buy the used bike. Just go out and buy the CB125R. 
as opposed to a brand new 125F. It's the bike you want, it's going to be rock solid reliability, nothing's going to go wrong with it anyway, so go out and get the dream bike. I also love those CB125Rs, lovely looking bike. Honda have really stepped up with that model over the, the older 125Hondas that I, I was never a fan of, but this one, they've hugely stepped up. Go out and get the second hand one, James. Welcome to biking. I move on, Freddie, a comment concerning first service costs. I bought a Triumph Speed Twin 900 in December 2022 from a dealer close to where I work. Uh, close to where I work being 160 miles from my home. The first service was due at 600 miles with only the cost of parts to pay. I booked the service for the end of January and achieved just under the required mileage, given everything that the British weather can throw at you. The service cost me 66 pounds 49 pence, and I thoroughly enjoyed my return trip. My point is, I could have taken the bike to my Triumph dealer, which is 15 miles from my home, and paid through the nose for the service. However, I'm a Yorkshireman. With my, with my mother from the highlands of Scotland, and I admit I'm a bit mean. But why buy a bike and not ride it? Finally, regarding warranty, my Triumph has two years included in the purchase price, and the services are now at 10,000 miles. A bit different to when I bought my T100 in 2005, which I've still got and is in perfect working order despite having carburetors. My other Triumphs include a T140V, no electronic start, a 955 Sprint, loved the howl of that triple. Yes, yes, Mr. T, I can confirm. I had the, uh, I had the 1050 triple and it sounds lovely. I had that my speed triple, great, great bike. A Bonavalesi, which I rode from Ness Point at sunrise to Darren Point in the Dingle Peninsula before sunset, a distance of 630 miles for the charity Help for Heroes. And finally, a Thruxton SE, which I rode from Blackpool Tower to the Eiffel Tower from dawn to dusk for the, sh for the same charity. I sold it soon afterwards for Harley Davidson Sports with Mini Apes for a relaxed riding position. Thank you for that, Mr. T. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. You know, the service cost, £66.49. You know, there are still good deals out there if you take it to the right place, but the difference in cost from dealer to dealer, it's, it really can be huge. And a lot of that does sometimes depend on, on the physical size of the dealer that you go to. If the overheads are higher, I know this is, is not biking specific, but I remember once I had um, an old Mini Cooper and I took it. It wasn't old, it was about 2005. And I took it to a Mini Specialist and it was this stunning, beautiful dealership. Really, really nice. And I thought, look, this will be good value because it's not a Mini specific dealer. It's not a Mini BMW dealership. It's, it's a very high-end looking Mini specialist but with no specific legal affiliation uh, to the mini dealership network and I thought look it would still be good value because it, it's you know it's independent but I got the bill and it, this bear in mind this is probably about 12 13 
maybe 14 years ago. Got the bill for £2,000 and there wasn't a huge amount of work that needed, but, but it turned out they were a, a Bosch appointed um, specialist dealer and I think they had very high overheads and, and that was quite shocking. So it really does pay to, to shop around when you're looking for places to get your bike or car worked on. Mr T, thank you so much for that. Fascinating insight. I move on, Freddie. I'm interested to know your opinion and indeed other listeners' opinions on DCT transmission on bikes. Are they just glorified scooters? Or is it a real life option which makes biking even more enjoyable? I'd be interested to hear about this. Many thanks, Sean. Yeah, Sean, this is a really interesting question. Just for those who don't know, DCT is, and bear in mind, I've, I've never actually ridden a bike with DCT, but to the best of my knowledge, knowledge, in essence, it's automatic transmission that they have on quite a few of the Hondas now. I think even the Honda Rebel 1100 can have DCT. I'm slightly on the fence with this, but if I had to jump off the fence, I would say that it's not, that it's doing it a disservice to say it's just a glorified scooter. I would go on the side of the fence that it's, it's a technology that, that can enhance some people's riding experience, depending on the kind of rider you are. I would personally put this into the same category as people liking different riding modes and liking cruise control and liking quick shifters uh, and any other electronic aids. I would clump it all together within that element. And I see the appeal of certain areas of those elements. I'm not anti them. Every time I try a bike with, with different elements, for example, cruise control, you know, it's actually quite nice when you have cruise control. ABS is the basic and when I ride a bike with ABS I can sometimes feel it kicking in and it does give me that extra level of security. I quite like it when it's there. If I had to say I probably am more the kind of biker that likes things stripped back to basics. Uh, I like the least amount of tech on a bike possible. However, however, I, in this situation with DCT I would think and I would say that for certain riders, I do understand the appeal and I understand that all riders are different with what they look for. So I would say it's more than just turning bikes into glorified scooters. There, there's there's a, a definite need and want in some areas of biking for this. So I would say, good, I welcome it. I do welcome it because it would work on certain bikes. But I'm fascinated to hear any people's opinions who actually have DCT on their bikes. What are your thoughts on it? Is it good or is it just some more tech that's going to be expensive on bikes that can end up going wrong? Share your thoughts, please. Sean, thank you. And moving on to Matt from North Yorkshire. Freddie, I've got a, a Yamaha Tracer 700 secondhand and I love it. I previously had a Yamaha XJ6 Diversion as my first big bike after passing my test. And like you, I bought my first post-test bike without any consideration for the type of rider and my style that I am. 
I didn't enjoy the XJ6 much at all, despite it being a perfectly fine motorcycle. I think it's incredible that the effect the right bike for you can have on the experience of riding and your lifestyle. I was on the verge of actually selling the XJ6 and not looking at other larger capacity bikes, if I'm honest, and actually just giving up on my passion because I felt inclined, uh, because I never felt inclined to actually go out for a ride. The Tracer, however, is exactly the right bike for me. It's full of that intangible character that makes or breaks bikes for many of us. The engine is superb and I feel like I never want to ride. Uh, I never want my rides with this bike to end. The right bike makes an unimaginable difference. All the best, Matt from North Yorkshire. Matt, you've just summed this up perfectly because the amount of bikers who, who will get into biking, get a bike, not actually enjoy that bike, but, but right off biking, that it's just not for them. And every bike is different. I, I have my certain kinds of bikes that I like. I love modern classic bikes and I love cruisers. I will always go for aesthetics and feel over performance, but that is no more than my personal opinion on bikes. They're the bikes that I like, and that's what I feel connected with, with regards to biking. That's why I love biking so much, but everyone is different within biking. So everyone has to go down their own routes and try and figure out the kind of bike that they, they feel a connection, a pull and a tie with. And there are plenty of bikers who may not ever get to feel that connection, may not ever get to experience and understand the exact kind of bike as they are because they may get their first bike, not actually enjoy it, and then leave biking for good because they never figured out the kind of biking that they like. For me, it's the lifestyle that goes with biking. I love the lifestyle around the classics, the Triumphs, the Harleys, jumping on the bike, the, the the lifestyle gear and jumping back off it and the casual coffee shop rides and everything around that. But finding that is, is often more difficult than we think and finding not just the, the looks of the bike but the performance. A lot of people can actually get scared off by biking thinking it's, it's too dangerous looking at these thousand cc bikes. Nope, I'm going to kill myself. But sometimes it's hard taking a step back and, and looking at the kind of bike just from a, a feeling and a motive point of view over a performance point of view. And I have to say, Matt, the, the Yamaha Tracer 700, I, I've mentioned these a few times, both on YouTube, YouTube and podcast. That's a lovely looking bike that I really must try this summer. And it's fantastic to hear from you and, and your journey to finding the right bike and how you almost just gave up and stopped riding. I totally get it. Matt, thank you. I move on. Freddie, caught a recent podcast referencing you. Oh, this is interesting. Rob, thank you for this. Caught a recent podcast referencing US healthcare pay-to-play model from JB. Here you go, JB. I, I knew you'd get attention for this. <laughs> this is a comfortable topic for me as my employer 
is a world-leading hospital with significant Nobel Prize winners on staff and a global footprint. In the US, healthcare is primarily employer-provided for our working population. Healthcare offerings are vast, with general rule of good jobs either paying 100% or 50, 60, 70, 80 or 90% of workers' monthly insurance premium. My top-of-the-line plan, for example, costs me $300 a month as I choose numerous options such as significant lump payments for cancer diagnosis, extended disability period payments, 80% of my salary, highly premium dental services, etc., etc. Barack Obama's Obamacare lets Americans purchase healthcare if not employer-offered or only low-quality plan offered. It's also heavily subsidized based on one's salary, so lower salary, higher subsidy. Retired Americans receive Medicare for the government with additional options provided we pay for such as drug prescriptions and plans, etc. Medicare payments are deducted from our pay all our working lives, then provided at no cost at 66.5 years old. So those choosing Obamacare that risk life without healthcare insurance would still receive hospital coverage as needed. No questions asked. Hospitals also set aside millions of dollars entitled for free healthcare for those with no insurance and no jobs. As bikers, not being treated by hospital or ambulance services would simply hire one of the zillions of available hungry American lawyers. <laughs> we call them ambulance chasers. And simply file a suit against whoever didn't provide reasonable health care. Is our health care expensive? Yes. Is it available to all? Yes. My friends in Canada gripe about their national health care insurance as well, calling out lack of timely, high-quality services. In the US, high-quality, world-leading health care is available. We just need to be smart and plan accordingly. Hope that helps, Rob. Well, Rob, you've opened my eyes a bit actually there, because that does paint a significantly more rosy picture of, of US health care than I, and probably a lot of Europeans, would believe. I also know that US healthcare is world-leading because many times in the news if someone needs something specialist done in the UK, for example, they will head off to the US because it is world-leading. Well, you do have world-leading specialists. Rob, thank you. I move on to Chris. Freddie, number plates, I think... Uh, number plates and on the, uh, the topic of undersized number plates, I think it might be a little unfair to direct all of the frustration towards the police themselves. A police officer should not just look the other way when they see the law being broken just because they personally aren't fond of that law. If they happen to see a motorcycle with an undersized plate or a car improperly displaying the front plate in the window, they're obliged to stop them, even if we know it's silly to do so. 
I do think the laws around plate sizes are ridiculous, but our anger needs to be directed towards those who legislate these laws in order to persuade them into changing it. Unfortunately, the British, atti British attitude is always to moan about it in private, so nothing ever changes. Well, that's an extremely level-headed approach, Chris, and you are right. Just because some people's perceptions are that police aren't covering the right areas, it doesn't and shouldn't mean that they should just turn a blind eye to a crime. <laughs> when, yeah, technically, undersized number plates are a crime, so the police shouldn't be be judged to be be specifically picking the crimes they want to pick and choose if a policeman sees a small number plate that is still a crime and a policeman should feel a police person should feel perfectly obliged to stop someone regardless of the crime and there can be no argument for that if a policeman sees you riding with a small number plate there can be no argument for being pulled over and being fined because it is still breaking the law. It's a perfectly level-headed response. Thank you for Chris. I can't argue with that at all. Thank you. Nick, Moto UK, I move on. Uh, this, this is the way the world's going. Oh Lord, take a look at this, Freddie. Cardo Intercom Systems, who I've used for a while. If for anyone who doesn't know, Cardo Systems, you clip it to the side of your helmet. You can then pick up your phone. You can talk to people completely hands-free. And I'm fairly certain you can probably listen to podcasts and the news with these systems as well. They look very impressive. I continue. Cardo Intercom Systems, who I've used for a while now, bring some of the best intercom systems to the market, but just reading now on Bennett's site, they will now go down a subscription route for all of the useful features you're used to getting for one off purchase. And this is madness. I've said it before and here it is again. Subscription services are not the way forward. Don't we have enough money to pay out on a monthly basis these days? This model, I'm sure, will lose customers to the brand and will be seen by some and will be seen by other intercom brands as a good time to start taking customers away from the Cardo brand. I'd love to hear everyone's feedback on this. Yeah, Nick, thank you for raising this. I had a look at this. I'm sure if I'm right in thinking, you, you know, you can have to pay up to about £6 a month to have... The, the benefits and the elements of this Cardo system that you need, so that Nick already has for free on his Cardo system. He will soon be having to pay, if my memory serves me correctly, six pounds a month to be able to use these systems, and 12 times six, 72, 72 pounds a year. You know, that is not an insignificant amount of money to be having to, to pay out. And this adds up very, very quickly, the amount of subscriptions. I know if I have a look at my, my bank statements, the amount of monthly subscriptions I've got, it, it adds up quickly. And before you know it, you've paid the price of these, whether it's Cardo or other systems, paid the price of the system in two years' worth of subscriptions. It's a very good business model from a business point of view, 
but it does sting for the consumer. Thank you for highlighting this. I, I welcome anyone else's opinions on this. I move on to Alexander, Freddie, on the previous podcast. There was a listener from the US asking about recommendations for an immediate, uh, from, for an immediate, for an intermediate adventure bike. I wanted to throw one of them out there. An air-cooled Triumph Scrambler would be a pre-made-up Bonneville off-roader bike. Also the Buell Ulysses, which is an American-made adventure bike with the bulletproof Harley Sportster Evo engine. Alexander, I'm glad you brought this up because you're, you're now, you make up a handful of bikers who have recommended the air-cooled Triumph Scrambler as a great-looking adventure bike. And you're bang on. Why, why can't it and why shouldn't this be a seriously good, capable, competent adventure bike? The air-cooled 865 Triumph Scrambler. Available for £5,000, high suspension travel, you get panniers on it, it's tough, it's rugged, it's simple, it's reliable, it looks great, it's, it can be modified to whatever you want it to be with, with a proven engine at great value. You get everything with these. It's, it, it ticks every box for someone wanting style but an adventure bike. And I've just clicked here on the Buell... Ulysses, <laughs> yeah, this is a, a really left field choice, but I've seen you can, you can get full panniers with this and you get a, a serious amount of exclusivity factor with this. But, but my question, can you get these, Alexander, in, in the UK, for example? I'm sure in the US you'll get a few, but even in the US, I'm sure Buell probably isn't a common sight. If I go on to, for example, Autotrader, there are only actually 23 Buells on Autotrader. But to my surprise, and I'm clicking here, Buell Ulysses, Buell Ulysses, there are five of them on Autotrader. And I've, I don't think I've looked at these before. Thank you for bringing this to my attention. Let's go price low to high. The cheapest Buell Ulysses 1200cc engine is £5,000. Exactly the same as the Triumph Scrambler. And guess what? Every single one, every single one, one, two, three out of the five for sale all come with, with full hard panniers. Let me just click on one to read you through this. It's got the, the Harley Sportster engine, 1200cc engine, hard panniers, and they are Buell-specific panniers. Very unique-looking bike. You're not going to miss this. It's a belt drive. It's got a big backrest, so it'll be comfortable for a pillion. 13,000 miles on the clock, 2010 model. Top box mount that, that doubles up as a pillion backrest. Oh, it's a, it's a lovely looking thing. Really very unique. It will never drop a penny this from 5K ever. If you want something that's going to turn heads, that's going to be a conversation starter, that bucks the trend from anything else you're going to see out there, take a look at this as a great shout out. Pretty, it isn't. It is not a pretty bike. 
but it's imposing and it makes a statement and it's I quite like it actually go and have a look at that I'll try and remember to include a link for that Alexander fantastic shout out I move on to Stefan Freddie I recently purchased my first big bike, a 2000 model Yamaha FZS Phaser 600. Now, this isn't the type of bike I ultimately want to end up with. However, I do feel it's a good idea to learn my craft on a cheaper bike before moving on to bikes that are more my style. Adventure, modern classic type bikes. My first bike was a 1992 Honda CG125 Brazil, which I rode around during my teenage years. And in my early 20s uh, with a CBT, having owned two bikes from a similar era, it got me thinking. Modern classic bikes are made to look like they're straight out of the 50s, 60s and the 70s. And the style has proved to be extremely popular. Do you think... As time goes on, there'll be a development of modern retro bikes that takes styling inspiration from bikes made in the late 80s, 90s and early 2000s. I'd be interested in your thoughts. Stefan, uh, I've spent, just before recording this podcast, about five minutes contemplating this. And it's, it's a very interesting question. If we look at style in general of clothing, everything goes full circle, whether it's the 60s, 70s or 80s, everything will go full circle. If you look, for example, at the 80s and 90s, probably more predominantly the 80s, everyone wore bum bags. What do they call them in America? Fanny packs. Everyone wore these. And then they were considered a complete joke, total joke, all the way up until probably four years ago. And now they're right back in style. Similarly with shell suits, track suits from the 80s. These were considered the coolest thing that you could possibly buy in the 80s. And then suddenly, about three years ago, they became completely back into fashion and everyone was on Depop these second-hand sites desperately looking for 80s and 90s-style tracksuits, shell suits. But does that translate favorably to motorbikes? I've got one example I wanted to share here, because for me personally, the, the 60s and 70s and 50s is the ultimate style period. But because I think it, does it mean it's true for everyone. I know Suzuki recently relaunched, what was that bike they, they brought back, the 1980s Suzuki that they brought back. Let me see if I can just find this on Google search. I think they did a brilliant job with this. Suzuki, uh, oh, Katana, Suzuki Katana. This was, I'm sure, a 1980s bike and Suzuki decided to bring it back. I think they did a brilliant job with this. This is a really good looking reincarnation of an old, what I believe to be, if my knowledge is correct, 1980s bike. They did a fantastic job. But to the best of my knowledge, this didn't sell. No one wanted it. I thought this was going to be a huge sales hit. 
But to the very best of my knowledge, and I welcome someone telling me differently, this was a massive flop. So I don't think, I don't think it will immediately translate, you know, these 80s, 90s, 2000 styled bikes. Will they also become classics? I'm not so sure. If we look at their cars, the Renault 5, they're considering bringing this back and they will bring it back. I think this will be a sales hit because it's classically designed. But, but does that mean bikes like, if we look at, because it's an old bike of mine, a Suzuki R600 or the sports bikes predominantly, if we look at the sports bikes from the 90s, will these suddenly become fashionable and vogue once again, maybe in 10, 20 years time? I am... I'm unsure. It's a really deep question. Uh, and I, I've loved pondering this. I welcome anyone's thoughts on this. But my feeling because of the Suzuki Katana and the fact that this was not a popular bike, I'm slightly unsure about it. But if it's done well, if it's done well, you know, if we look, I tell you what, one more thing before I move on from this. Honda Transalp. This is a reincarnation of a a beautiful cult following 1990s Honda. I think this will do very well. I think Honda have probably done just about okay without doing brilliantly with regards to styling. I like the look of this bike. It looks okay. I think Honda could have done more with the retro styling. I think they could have probably done a slightly better job but maybe that slight nod to the 90s is just enough, but they could have been braver with it and that could have been an absolute winner from the off, purely from a looks point of view. I'm sure it'd be a great bike. So Stefan, I'm actually on the fence. I'm kind of talking myself round back and forth to it. I think it's a fantastic, fantastic question to ask. I'm gonna jump off the fence here. I'm going to say yes, the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, will be future style inspirations for what we look at in 20 years time or so. That's deep, Stefan. I move on to Steve. Freddie, when, you, uh, when you're touring, ooh, Freddie, when you're touring, do you ever wish you had a bike with more wind protection and a bigger tank range? Or do you just fall in love with your own bike even more? Oh, Steve, I love this question. I love it, I love it. I love the, the feeling of the wind in my hair or the wind in my face. For me, that is such a huge part of the magic of why I love stripped back modern classic bikes. It's, it's everything I love about stripped back bikes. And it's what we were touching on earlier. What is biking to each of us? It's different, the idea of dream biking for each of us. For me, it's, it's stripped back, it's classic styling, it's, having nothing more than what you need. It's the feeling of just being at one with your bike. And for me, that's having nothing more, if possible, than just an engine and a, a beautifully sculpted bike. So I'm a fan of the, the feeling of the, the wind in my face smashing against me, having the elements. I love it and I, I wouldn't change that for anything. For me, that's the magic of big road trips. And I've done plenty of big road trips and it makes me love the bike even more. So for me, I, I would never be without it. I get the appeal 100% of having a screen. It is 
if you get the right screen that actually stops the buffeting on your head, it, it, it's very appealing. And I won't say a bad word against it, but for me, oh, it's the magic, Steve. They're completely exposed to the elements. I love everything about it. But your second question, Steve, bigger tank range. Yes, I will admit the Bonneville's range, it will give me to the fuel light 130 miles and then I'll get an extra 25 miles. You'll get, if you push it to the limit, 155, maybe 160 miles to absolute empty. But I'm looking to fill up from probably 120 miles. And yes, I wish it was more. I wish it was closer to the 200 mile mark. So yes, Steve, I will give you that. I wish it had a bigger tank range. If, if there were an option for me to put on a bigger tank without completely destroying the looks of the Bonneville, I would, I would pay a few hundred quid to do that mod because I hate filling up with fuel. I hate it, it annoys me. Yes, thank you, Steve. Moving on, I'm moving on to, oh, this is one, two, this is Steve again. I should have clumped these all together. Another question from Steve or another statement. Freddie, tell Jack from your latest podcast who wants a tip for his Mod 1 motorcycle test. Don't count the figure of eights. Just keep doing it until the examiner tells you to stop. I wish I'd have done that, Steve. That's a really good point. Just carry on because the last thing you need to be doing is, is thinking about have I done the complete figure of eight. And one more from Steve. Um, you mentioned on an old podcast that you only insure your bike third party fire and theft, but you didn't elaborate on why. Could you tell us why? Uh, and I've got a second question from Steve, but yes, let me answer this. It's a really, it's a really good question, Steve. I always insure my bikes just as third party fire and theft. And for anyone who's not familiar with how it works, to break it down simply, you've got three different insurance levels you can get in the UK. The cheapest, most basic is third party. All that does, that means if you crash your bike, let's say into someone else, the insurance will cover that other person's vehicle. It will pay to have the other vehicle of the other person, the third parties repaired. And if they're injured, it will cover them. It won't cover your bike at all. If your bike gets written off, send it to the scrapyard. You're done, you walk off, you're going to be out of pocket. The next level up is third party fire and theft. Now that covers everything I've just discussed. Also it covers if someone steals the bike, your insurance will reimburse you for the cost of the bike and fire, if it catches fire, your insurance company will reimburse you the value of the bike. The top, the top cover is comprehensive. That's where everything's covered. If I'm foolish and I crash my bike into a lamppost, the insurance company will pay to fix my bike or replace it. I always go for the cheapest option, which funnily enough is usually the mid option, third party fire and theft. And the reason I do this, Steve, is because at least when I'm looking, it's usually a good 200 pounds a year, sometimes more, two, let's say 200 pounds a year cheaper going for third party fire and theft over the fully comprehensive. My reasoning is this, I save 200 pounds a year 
and statistically speaking, and I'm touching wood here because I know something could happen tomorrow, statistically speaking, I'm not going to crash the bike. And, I, and that means that I can save myself 200 pounds a year. Now look, I know I could crash the bike tomorrow, but if I'm thinking level-headedly and statistically, I haven't crashed so far. So st statistically, I've probably saved myself about two and a half thousand pounds, maybe 3,000 pounds over the past 12 years in insurance costs, and I haven't crashed yet. My second point is this, because the Bonneville is cheap. Oh, and bear in mind, I've got a cheap bike in the Bonneville. That hugely influences what kind of insurance policy I have. The second point is this, if I crash, and I claim on my insurance, my insurance policy is going to go up noticeably. So I would probably rather crash and try and fix the bike myself with cheap secondhand parts and not claim on insurance because I don't want to take a hit on my insurance premium. Now this changes immediately, Steve, if I go out and buy, for example, my dream 10,000 pound bike, because I would then have to get fully comprehensive insurance because there's no way I'm risking crashing into someone and not protecting the value of the bike. That wouldn't make sense. But because my bikes are always quite cheap, 800 to 3,000 pound mark, it means that uh, I believe the risk is negated by the cost saved. I hope that makes sense. I move on to Rory. Freddie, two questions. Oh, and Steve, am I doing the DGR? Ugh. If I'm back in time, I will, Steve, but I, I think I may be on a stag do, the exact time DGRs, and I'll have to check the dates. Otherwise, I'll definitely do it. I move on to Rory. Freddie, two options of bikes I'm looking at to finally get myself a big bike and do some touring. Granted, they're both triumphs, but here lies my dilemma. Both are between 19 and 25,000 miles respectively. Both are 2017 and 2018 models, but it's a toss up between a T100 and a Street Twin. I really can't make my mind up on which to go for. However, the Street Twin is the bike with the least mileage and the younger bike. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Rory, this is for me so simple. Forget about the mileage and forget about the age because in my eyes, it's meaningless. These Triumphs are so well built, five, six, seven, eight, even nine, 10, 15,000 miles. It's nothing on these bikes at all. I always say it, but my Bonneville, I can't remember, I'm sure it's almost 40,000 miles. I don't look after it at all. I ride it in all conditions. They don't rust, the engines require no real love at all. They go on forever. So forget about mileage, forget about the year of the bike. Focus only on what bike do you prefer. Just look at them side by side. Which one pulls at your heartstrings more? Which one gets you more excited? Which one do you think you're going to love more? That is all that matters with your choice. Let me know, Rory, what you go for. I move on to, oh, Gurgly, Gurgly from Hungary. I was having a chat with Gurgly, I'm sure I discussed on a recent podcast. Gurgly's had, in fact, let me read out the, the message. Um, I, Gurgly bought uh, a Harley Davidson and I said, look, Gurgly, is it everything you dreamt it would be? Is it really that nice having a, a Harley? Here's Gurgly's response. Uh, Freddie, it's, it's more than incredible and impressive, more so than I thought. I've got an old V-Star XVS 1100, still up for sale. 
which I've owned since 2010. It's a great bike, but it's light years from the Harley. That's what I've really understood now. We shouldn't forget the Dragstar 1100 was designed when the Virago 1100 came out in the 80s. Same engine, same brakes. It's 40-year-old technology. There are plenty of rumors about the quality of Harley-Davidson. They say only the name, it's only the name that's, that keeps the trademark in life, etc. But I think this isn't true. Different engineering philosophy for Harleys. Everything is simple, raw, steel, and it behaves like a simple bicycle. It's completely ununderstandable or ununderstandable. I can't understand it how uh, a bike can be made which is 800 pounds in weight and how it can move like this. And of course, the feeling of the rumbling engine is just awesome. You need, uh, you need a real person to be able to keep the horse on the lawn. Everything shapes, shakes and everything snaps. The seat's comfy, not that slippery like the old bike. And it's on a completely different planet to my old dragster. Oh, Gurgly, you know, just hearing from you, seeing you, you going off and buying this Harley Davidson. That's that for, for a lot of riders. I know a lot of riders don't understand Harleys, and I think you're going to be in two camps. It's very simple. Either you get Harleys and you love everything about them, or you think they are ludicrous tractors that are overpriced. But, but Gurgly, I get it. My Lord, I get it 100%. It's... It is still a dream that I, I know I will one day have to act upon to finally get a Harley. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Moving on to Reese, Freddie. I recently looked at your review of the Royal Enfield Meteor 350 and I was just blown away. I'll be renewing the CB, my CBT this summer and I'm thinking about going for the full license after that. I was looking at secondhand bikes for the future and I was just amazed by uh, the looks and the price of this bike. Whilst looking on the website, I also noticed the Hunter 350, which is slightly cheaper and it also looks amazing. As a first time biker, what would you recommend out of the two? Reese, this is a very, very tricky conundrum. The Royal Enfield Hunter 350, which is slightly cheaper than the classic 350. Now, I've never ridden the Hunter, but I know it will be an excellent first bike. It will be comfortable. It will be incredibly cheap to run. It will be unbelievably easy, unbelievably easy to ride. So there's nothing that could be more perfect. I know the engine, of course, and it's in the classic 350. And I know the classic 350 well, and it's one of the most feel-good bikes I've ever ridden. I always bang on about it. If someone said, what is the best bike? If you take everything into account, I may well say the classic 350. Uh, but what should you go for? My advice, Reese. I know it sounds obvious. Again, same advice, go for what pulls at your heartstrings. Both of them are going to be very, very good bikes to own, uh, be cheap to run and be easy to ride. So go for what pulls at your heartstring more. What bike do you like the look of more? When you look at both of them, which one is it that you prefer the looks of? I would keep it very simple. 
don't worry about the dynamics. Don't worry about reading reviews about what one people think is better. Go purely on the one that you like the looks of more and keep it as simple as that because they're both going to be good bikes. My personal thoughts, purely on the looks point of view, while I love the Hunter, my Lord, I do love the Hunter and I mean that, I just, I, I can't say enough good words about the 350. I remember, I know I always talk about it. I remember that classic 350 in Lithuania. I couldn't stop looking at it. Every time it was parked up where we were staying in a little, um, a little housing estate, I would just look out the window and look at it. Oh, I love that bike so much. It developed a personality in my mind. I loved it that much. I move on. Thank you, Reese. Good luck. Happy shopping. Freddie, recently, uh, I currently ride a, a Herald Classic 400. That's a lovely bike. Uh, quite, quite niche still. Not on the same size as the, the Royal Enfields, company-wise, but lovely looking bike. I, I ride a classic, I ride a Herald Classic 400, which I've had great, great pleasure in owning. However, this is about to change. Whilst I was on the Malay Mile last summer and seeing Royal Enfield Motorcycles polo team on their classic 350s, I really felt the look of these machines um, is for me. And I've been toying with the idea of maybe changing my bike at some point in the future. Look, I've been very interested in the classic 350. It's certainly added to my desire to maybe change over to the 350. After hearing you wax on so lyrically about its attributes and how enjoyable it was to ride, I had parked the idea until recently when a 2022 plate classic 350 popped up at a local dealer with only 800 miles on the clock. I just couldn't resist and I made a tentative inquiry. <laughs> Oh, now that's dangerous. Now you've made the first mistake there. I know that feeling. I've made a tentative inquiry about trading in my Herald against a classic 350. Needless to say, here we go. The figures came back and the deal had to be done. The deposit has to be paid and I collect my classic 350 in a week. The reason I felt I had to drop you the email though was that after listening to your latest podcast and hearing from your listeners mentioning how much he liked the Halcyon Grey, I had to smile as my new bike is the same color. It's actually the Halcyon Dark, uh, Halcyon Day Grey Dark with the grey bodywork. Ah, okay. Black engine and tan seat. Fantastic, what a combo. In my opinion, a real stunner of a bike, and it was great to hear you share the same view. Next week can't come quickly enough. Steve, this is, um, so you've moved from a 400cc Herald to a 350cc Royal Enfield Classic 350. It shows the strength and the quality of these Royal Enfield Classic 350s that you'll move from your 400cc bike to a 350, and I get it 100%. Steve, I, I don't think you're going to be sleeping because I know that feeling and the thought of actually going to pick up a Halcyon Grey Classic 350, there will be no sleeping at all. Good luck, Steve. Moving on to Eric. Eric from Arizona, USA. I wanted to chime in on, I love this, Royal Enfields, they, they get you know, they generate conversation. I wanted to chime in on the, the Royal Enfield versus Triumph comparison on servicing. 
Ah, now this is interesting. A little bit of teching knowledge here. Royal Enfield threaded lock nut valve adjusters on all of their current models. So Royal Enfield uses threaded lock nut valve adjusters in all of their current models, whilst Triumph uses shims and buckets for valve adjustment. The trade-off is between ease of service versus length of adjustment interval. So, Royal Enfield made the decision to make the engine easier to service. Triumph decided to make services less frequent. The decision to make the engine easier to service, Triumph decided to make services less, less frequent. So the downside of this is that it is more challenging to service shims than it is to adjust the lock nut system. I cannot speak for regulations in the UK, but it's against US law for a manufacturer to require service by a dealer to honor warranty. An owner needs to present evidence that they did the service, brackets usually shown by, record, uh, by recording the measured distances and the dates, oil receipts, etc. And that's considered sufficient evidence of service. This means that if you learn to do the service yourself, you can save a lot of money. This realization is precisely why I got back into motorcycling after a seven year hiatus caused in large by part atrocities of the dealer service experiences, one of which resulted in a blown engine on my old Ducati M750 Monster. I learned that if I was going to get back into riding, I would have to learn to wrench in my own machines. I currently own a 1997 Yamaha XJ600 Seca 2, which I've converted to a naked semi-classic style, mild custom. It's a wonderfully simple machine with reasonably good looks. Uh, enjoy the attached photo. Eric, yes, Eric, I shared this pic. Go and check out the Instagram uh, Facebook page, which is the underscore freedom underscore machines. And you can see Eric's new to him Yamaha XJ600. I really like these, just touching on this, Eric. These bikes, the Yamaha XJ600, the air-cooled Suzuki Bandit 600, these will be looked upon very, very fondly, and it touches upon an earlier comment from someone. Could the 80s, could the 90s bikes turn into the future classics? Well, I think, Eric, you've made the point that they will. Because if I look at the Suzuki Bandit 600, the Yamaha XJ 600, these very simple bikes, these were simple bikes, everyday commuter bikes, available bikes to the masses, Yes, yes, you've sold it to me. These will be the future classics, or these will be bikes that get reincarnated in 10, 20 years' time. I would buy a Yamaha XJ600 in 10, 20 years' time, and I would look back at it fondly. Similarly, if someone does a, a real, a genuine, uh, sympathetic if Suzuki come out with a Bandit 600 that looks really similar to that 1990s Bandit or oh, I'd be tempted for the exact reason that we love the Bonnevilles because it harks back to a time that we can remember because these bikes were accessible and attainable and you've sold it to me there Eric very passionate about that because you, you've sold it to me when I saw your XJ600 
looking just stripped back, but sympathetic to the original. I, I just looked lovingly at that bike. It looks great. Um, and techie knowledge there, it's, a, it's an interesting toss-up. I did not know that because I'm not technically inclined, but comparing, you know, what do you want? Ease of servicing, but more servicing, or more complicated servicing, but less servicing. It's a genuine toss-up, that. Eric, thank you. Congrats and welcome back to biking. I, I think you've done a great job with that, Yamaha. I really do. I'm moving on to Sean. I've got, let me have a look, two or three left here. Here we go, last two or three. Freddie, reference the conversation about the direct access motorcycle test and helping Jack. I had almost the exact same experience as you. I did my training with BMW in Wales and I had a student, I had another student with me and we did the course together. Having passed the mod one part, we went back the next day to do mod two. The other chap went out first and came back. Oh, came back to tell us it failed. This, this lumped more pressure on me and I really began to feel it. The ride was going well until the examiner asked me to take the next turning on the right. I did all my checks, all my signals, moved to the right of the lane and I was about to turn when I noticed a no entry sign. I quickly did the necessary to go back into or to get back into going straight on, having avoided going down the no entry road. But in my head I'd failed. It just felt like that was it. But surprisingly, in complete alignment with you, I suddenly felt tension lift and thought, look, I've paid for this course. I may as well enjoy the rest of the ride. So I just rode and actually enjoyed the moment. I got back to the test center, fully expecting to fail. But to my surprise, I passed. The instructor said that although I'd shaped to go down the no entry road, I did everything right in correcting myself. Therefore, I pass. Just goes to echo your sentiment of trying to relax and just enjoy the ride. Sean, thank you for that. Uh, wise words, absolutely spot on. It's incredible how, how we can just, regardless of how much we want to try it, uh, the mind is a powerful thing and it can just influence us oh, negatively in so many areas. I move on to Tristan. Freddie, thought I'd drop your line as I'm about to take a plunge on a Royal Enfield Interceptor. Um, uh, to help pay for it though, I need to sell one of my two bikes and I'm not sure which. I'd be interested in your thoughts and the thoughts of the listeners. I, uh, here we go, I've got a 1999 Naked Bandit 1200. Oh, Tristan, I love these bandits. I love everything about them. That, oh, this is a, a, this is a, a bang on surefire classic, a Naked 1200 Bandit from 1999, surefire classic, in very good and standard condition, Tristan. That's so rare to find that. It's probably worth in the region of two and a half K. And I've also got a 1999 Honda Juvil 650 in very good standard condition, worth about one and a half grand. Both bikes have around 33,000 miles on the clock. I love both. I've had the Bandit for 16 years and I adore it. And I adore its muscle bike looks, endless torque and great sound, but the Juvil, the Juvil is so year-round practical, comfortable and handles beautiful, handles beautifully. The Interceptor is only going out on sunny days, 
so which should I keep out of the bandit and the Juvel? I'm so sorry. Juvel. Duvel. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Someone let me know if I've just butchered the pronunciation. One thing on servicing costs for the Enfield. Uh, an emailer last week was quoted £300 for a service, including the valve check. According to multiple sources on the Interceptor UK Facebook group, that's way off. It should be about £150, and the consensus is about £80 for a minor service. Best wishes from Sleet in Cambridgeshire, Tristan. Tristan, thanks for, for opening up. Opening up. Thanks for sharing that on the interceptor servicing costs, because I'm sure that will put a lot of potential Royal Enfield owners minds at ease there, that you don't have to pay £300. Again, go to an independent or do it yourself and you're going to have infinitely cheaper servicing costs and they're so easy to work on. Now, the Juvel or the Bandit, I welcome anyone's thoughts here. My heart and my financial head says keep that 1200 Bandit. For you to have in your hands an air-cooled 1200 bandit in standard condition naked this ticks every box for the most desirable bandit that everyone either wants now or is going to be wanting in the future from the 1990s i don't think there'll be a huge amount of more desirable bikes this was the ultimate bike for so many people growing up and getting into biking it's I'm sure for many people thought of, thought of as the, uh, the, the Widowmaker. This was a beast of a bike. To have a 1200cc engine with no rider aids, this was the ultimate mean machine. I, uh, talking from the, the heart and the financial head, I, I think you, you must do anything you can to keep hold of it. This is, I really believe this is going to fly up in value. I can see these being 10K in years to come. Maybe people think I'm crazy. I think that these bandits will be £10,000 classics. The Juvel, on the other hand, in my eyes, will never be looked upon that favourably. It will always be a simple tool for the job, but I do not think it will be looked upon that lovingly. But looking at it from... Uh, a sensible point of view, you need it as a winter hack, and that bandit is too nice as a winter hack. But I couldn't get rid of that bandit. But then again, if you get the right price for the bandit, I can see the point. If it were me, I, I cannot sell the bandit. And if you have to get rid of one, I say get rid of the Juvel. The problem is with, with that, that then turns the bandit into a winter hack. Tristan, I'm torn. I welcome it. Give me your views, people. Let me know what, what, you, what you get rid of out of the two. Then the Bandit 1200 is too nice for winter hack. Oh, Tristan, I see your dilemma. That Bandit needs to be uh, just now. It's too special. It has to be a fair weather rider. But then your Intercept will be a fair weather riding bike. And the, the Juvel plugs the gap between the two. Oh, okay, I welcome it. Just let me know, let me know. I move on, I'll, I'll be talking nonsense otherwise. I move on to Ash. Freddie, I've got a question. Curious on your thoughts. I've got a 2020 Royal Enfield Continental GT650 in the Mr. Clean finish. It's my first bike and I got it secondhand from a gentleman who didn't ride it much and he took fantastic care of it. 
Um, I've really enjoyed my last season on it and I'm thinking about doing some light modifications but I always get this thought in my mind that maybe it needs more power. I've never actually been in a situation where I needed more power but I don't know if, if it's just this guy thing about always wanting bigger and better or if actually I need more power for highway riding here in Canada, which admittedly isn't a ton for me. I've toyed with trading it in and graduating up in class to something like the Triumph Street Twin or Ducati Scrambler, but I've always read about and have seen some videos that have done that 865cc big bore conversion in order to get more power out of the Royal Enfield. Are there any downsides in doing mods like this? Looking at the cost of it, I'm thinking out my options. Option one, trade or sell the Royal Enfield GT650, put in some cash and buy a bigger bike. Number two, upgrade the bike with this kit from 650cc to 865cc. Third, be happy with my bike the way it is because it's still kind of great and I love riding it. I'm torn here. Are there any real downsides to upgrading the bike itself? I'm committing, or I'm committed to upgrading a few cosmetic things, bar and mirrors, wind cow, etc. But, 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 this would be a much larger commitment and I wonder if I wouldn't be better off just getting a new bike altogether or should I just learn to be happy with what I've got because the grass isn't always greener. Cheers uh, and have a great trip. Ash, usually I would say if you're looking and if you feel you need a more powerful bike, sell it and buy, buy a more powerful bike because the amount of hassle that you will have to go through to modifying your current bike and the fact that modified bikes, especially if you're modifying the engine, it will put a lot of people off from future resale value because a lot of people may wonder, look, who's done this job to the engine? What have you done if I go to get it serviced? You know, will there be problems? Will there be undue stress on the engine? You know, you're putting more power into that engine. Is there going to be undue stress on it? Could I be in for a horror show in years to come because certain elements of the engine won't be able to, to keep up? Have you upgraded the brakes? Because can the brakes in the current state cope with the extra power. Now, I would usually say all of those things in 99.9% .9 of situations, Ash, but I went to Royal Enfield in Lithuania and I saw that they've done this exact conversion to an 865cc, which funnily enough is exactly bang on the CC of my Triumph Bonneville, 865. And they had done this 865cc conversion on an inter uh, Interceptor or Continental. And I went there, beautiful dealership. And they said, Freddie, come have a look at this. Royal Enfield Interceptor, 865cc conversion. They turn on the engine and it's got an exhaust. Fire it up. Wash this. This was such a, a beautiful moment to hear 
a converted 865cc interceptor. The sound of that engine, the extra grunt that you can hear and feel from the engine. You know, my overriding thought, Ash, from this is that this has turned what is a brilliant bike into a brilliant bike with no downsides at all. It's turned it into very possibly the bike it always should have been. It's turned it into the ultimate interceptor. Go and have a watch back if you can find it. It's my Royal Enfield, Royal Enfield tour in Lithuania from a YouTube video. It's around about six months ago. But it, I show that exact bike, what you want to do, Ash. And it left me feeling that uh, I would really seriously consider that. If I bought an Interceptor, I would consider doing that, that conversion to an 865cc. Um, I would actually recommend you doing it, Ash. And I would very rarely say that about other bikes to, to play around with the engine. But this is a known conversion on these bikes and it turns it into an incredibly special machine. Really very, very special. It turns it into a dream bike, exactly as you will dream it to be. It is phenomenal what that extra HP, or that extra CC capacity has done. And bear in mind, I'd never actually ridden it, but just hearing it, oh, oh, it's, it, you'll never want to sell it after that. I'll move on to Jamie. Freddie, Jamie B here from Riverside. Oh, yes. I need to try and pop in to visit here. Jamie B here from Riverside Custom Cycles. This is in Kent. Hope you fully recovered from food poisoning. I sent a message a couple of weeks back regarding choppers. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I could hear the excitement in your voice when you're imagining yourself on one. One of your points of concern was luggage, but all you need to do is have a good sissy bar and you can strap whatever you need to it. Plus you can lean back on it while you ride. I didn't mean to scare you off by saying choppers need a lot more maintenance, but if you get yourself a good manual, you can overcome most things by yourself. I know some people don't get it. And me and Mr. GS do, uh, do not see eye to eye. We could all jump on a GS and go from point A to point B each time without a hiccup and get there in comfort every time. But think of it like this. We only get one shot in life. And when we're old and gray, is it not better to have the memories of the breakdowns and people you meet because of the, the breakdown and so on? Look, if you have two people, for example, climbing a mountain, one of them's in peak physical fitness with all the right equipment, and the other is past his best with hardly any equipment. And even though the fitter of the two would get there first, which one would have better stories and a huge sense of self-achievement? Always have a kickstart. Uh, always have a kickstart only as it looks and feels special. Plus you can understand your bike better from only having a kickstart. I've attached two pictures. One of the bike when I imported it from the States as a stock bike and one how it looks now as a chopper. It's over 40 years old so it's MOT and tax exempt and it has an exposed primary belt and no front brakes. Or well, you should see the stupid grin on my face from miles away every time I get that bike on that bike. It's an adventure. Jamie, I'm going to make sure I share these pics on the Instagram and Facebook pages so people can see. Fantastic transformation. I think it's probably the coolest in my eyes genre of bike. I love 
everything about shoppers. Jamie, thank you. Move on to the final one of the week. Freddie, I used your videos a lot um, while looking at bikes and what bike I wanted to get. And I loved your approach to highlighting the capability of modern classics, especially the Bonnevilles. They really are do-it-all machines and often don't get enough credit amongst the wider biking community. On a side note, I was a police officer and loved the questions surrounding motorcycle traffic law and culture. For the majority of police officers, motorcycles are really not all that interesting unless it's two people on a moped, a sports bike traveling at 80 and a 30, the gear, clothing, doesn't match the type of bike, or anyone doing a wheelie. That's just my personal opinion. Anyway, I learned to ride whilst in the police, and I believe I have, uh, I believed I had to have a BMW RT or GS or Honda NC750X at the very least with lots of rocker gear and a white flip-up lid. All great bikes, but all about their ergonomics and not so much about their character. I soon realized that all bikes were incredibly capable and a lot of the appeal of the growing adventure and commuter bike market was just simply perceived reliability and capability. After realizing this was more about perception than facts, I've actually settled on a Bonneville T120 2022 or 2020, sorry, in green and white. Oh, that's a, that's a fantastic color choice that I don't see much. It's brilliant. It does everything well. And I truly believe that not something that, that a big adventure bike could do for me. The Bonneville is light enough, but planted plenty powerful enough with usable torque. It's a good size and great riding position. It's got the character, it can be built up to tour and commute or strip back to nip around town. Not to mention I can put my stamp on it like no other bike. The engine's great, the electronics are simple. The best bike, and I mean this, the best bike that is easy to get on and just ride. Thanks for continuing to represent the modern classics and their capability with every area of use. Within a world of BMW and GSs that don't see a puddle, but PS, I would still love to own a BMW GS too. Thank you so much and I'll end it there. And thank you so much to Excel Moto. You can check the link in the description for the course kit sale. Please do keep on sharing your thoughts and opinions and share any images you have. I love to have a look at them. The Instagram page, the underscore freedom underscore machines. You can get in touch, hi at thefreedommachines.com or as always get in touch on Instagram, the website and Facebook. Thank you all. Have a fantastic day.